What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all, but the life He lives, He lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we worship you. Thank you, Lord, that you have set us free that there is life in Christ and life forevermore. That those who believe, those who are called by the name of Christ, those who call themselves Christians, followers of Jesus, who have been born again indeed are free. And we praise you for that, Father. We praise you. 
we give you glory. We give you honor. Thank you that we have been baptized into Christ. And that just as we were baptized into his death, we have been raised into the likeness of his resurrection. And now we live the resurrected life, united to Christ, filled with the Spirit, blessed by the Father, covered with his mercy and grace. And we give you honor. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the price that you paid for us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for bringing us into the church, making us the bride, your bride, making us the body, your body. Thank you that each member has a part to play and that you give us gifts, you give us the strength to serve you and to serve others, and you even reward us for it when it's all said and done. How amazing is your grace. Father, we lift up all the saints around the world. We lift up all the saints and the churches that are gathering right now on the Lord's day to give you glory. We pray your blessing upon your church. and May you be exalted to the highest place, Jesus, because of your accomplishments, because of your achievements. We pray for our brothers and sisters around the world who are being persecuted even in this very hour, who are suffering, who are starving, who are being beaten, imprisoned, Lord, and so many more worse atrocities, Lord, things that we just don't encounter where we are. I thank you for the freedom that we have, O oh God. Let us not take it for granted. Let us not be lazy and lax, but let us use our freedoms to further the kingdom, O oh God. And we lift up our brothers and sisters and pray that you would pour out strength and peace and joy joy unexplainable and inexpressible, and that you would give them the strength to suffer well and to honor you, O God, and reward them, O Lord. So we praise you, we praise you, Lord, and we thank you. You're so good, so kind. We give you the glory that you deserve. Take our lives, Lord, and let them be offerings for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are in John chapter 20 today. We are sprinting through John now. We've been here for a couple of years, I think. And when we were going through uh, chapters 13 through 16, I mean, there were days where we were doing one verse at a time. And so now that we're back into the narrative and looking at uh, the story as it's unfolding with the death and resurrection of Jesus, we're moving at a faster pace. Lord willing, we'll finish John next week and see where the Lord would have us go from there. But today we are in chapter 20, and of course this is the, the account of Jesus' resurrection. Just how amazing this is, what's actually taking place here, just gloss over us, pass over us, because we hear these things so often that it loses its amazement with us, and that is really tragic. That ought never be. And so this is incredible what Christ has done, what Christ has accomplished. This is why Christ came. This is it. This is the pinnacle. As we considered his crucifixion and now his resurrection, this is the bedrock. This is foundational to the Christian faith. If you don't believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, you can't even consider yourself a Christian. And so this is one of those things that we must believe, but praise God for the reality of it. Because he lives, we too shall live. If he did not raise from the dead, as pa uh, Pastor Dan quoted earlier, 
from 1 Corinthians 15, then we would have no hope. We too would go into the grave and remain there. And there are so many other implications of the resurrection that we're just not going to be able to look at today, unfortunately. But I am grateful for this chapter of Scripture. Before we go on, join me one more time in a word of prayer. Father, we worship you. We honor you and we reverence your word. We open it today with glad hearts and we open it with anticipation, trusting that, God, you will meet with us here, that you will speak to us by your word, that your Holy Spirit will illumine the scriptures to us, that you will reveal yourself to us in a greater way so that we can honor and glorify you more and live lives that honor you more so that we can live godly healthy, productive lives. Thank you for your inspired word that you've revealed to us. Thank you that we have a copy for our own and that we can read this. Thank you that we have the Holy Spirit who helps us in our understanding and changes us from the inside out. And so we praise you, God. Please have your way today, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, having gone through John, the Gospel of John, you know by now One thing that's unique about this gospel is the seven I am statements. Seven times Jesus will say, I am, and then he will follow that with something like the bread of life, or the way, the truth, and the life, or I am the vine, so on and so forth. And when he says, I am, that is a title that he is taking to himself of deity. He is claiming to be God, God in the flesh. That goes back to Exodus chapter 2 when Moses was speaking to the Lord who was in that burning bush and he said, who shall I say sent me? And he says, tell them that I am sent you. I am that I am. And so Jesus is taking that title for himself and when he says this, everybody would know what he's saying. But then he attaches something to it that could only be true if he were God. Could only be true if he were God. And one of those that I want to consider today before we get into our text is in John chapter 11. As Lazarus, you may know the name, Lazarus was sick, and Mary and Martha sent for Jesus to come and to to heal him, and Jesus waited deliberately, and then Lazarus died. And then Jesus came and found that his friend had already passed away. Obviously, he knew this. Seemed like such a tragedy to all of those people involved, but Jesus knew exactly what he was going to do. He was going to put the glory of God on display. Amen? Well, when he comes into the town, in verse 17 of chapter 11, it says, Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Now listen to this. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. But Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? 
And she said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. So Jesus says that he himself is the resurrection and the life, and that you, if you believe in him, you won't die, but you will have everlasting life. Now, only God can make a claim like that. Could you imagine if I said, you might not have known this about me, folks, but I'm the resurrection and the life, and if you believe in me, you'll never die. You would say you're crazy, and rightfully so, but Jesus, being divine, God incarnate, God in the flesh, the Son of God, has every right to make that claim. And he himself will die and rise again from the grave, proving that he can make that claim and make good on it. And because he has risen from the grave, we who are in Christ shall rise. But not even in the end, even now we have resurrection life and power through faith in Jesus. Because Paul says in Ephesians that the same power that raised Christ from the grave is at work in us through the Holy Spirit. That's amazing. It takes the power of God to take a dead sinner and raise them to life. To take a heart of stone and turn it into a heart of flesh. To write God's law on his heart and to pour God's love into him by the Holy Spirit. To change him radically from the inside out. That is the power of God that we have working in us. That is the resurrection power. And that is just one of the many glorious implications of the resurrection that we will consider today. Amen? So with that, let's turn our attention to John chapter 20. As we walk through this chapter, I just want to kind of outline the chapter as, as we see it. And in the first 10 verses of chapter 20, what is actually the emphasis of this portion of Scripture is the empty tomb. That is what is emphasized here, the empty tomb. So just keep that in mind. Verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. And she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So this is the first day of the week, so this would be Sunday. This is Sunday. Jesus had been crucified and laid in the tomb on Friday. Now they expedited his death. He had already died, but you recall that they wanted to break the legs of those hanging on the cross so that they would die, so that they could get them off the crosses and in the grave before the Sabbath. Do you recall that? And I talked about the reason they would do that is because when someone was hanging on a cross, they could hang there for two or three days. And they couldn't breathe, so they would have, because of the way they were hanging, they would have to push off with their feet and raise their bodies up just enough to get air. My calf almost cramped up there. <laughs> and then they would have to drop back down, and then they would have to do that over and over just to breathe. So in order to have them have their death expedited, they would break their legs so that they would suffocate. When they came to Jesus, they realized that he was already dead, and they pierced his side just to be sure. And as the scriptures recount, blood and water came out of his side. So then he was taken off the cross. He was in the tomb all day Saturday, and now here we are on Sunday, the first day of the week. 
So it wasn't three full 24-hour days, but it was three days, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And the reason why we gather on this day is for this very reason. Sunday is not the Christian Sabbath. Sunday is not the Christian Sabbath, okay? And some people uh, think that, but that's not why we gather on Sunday. We gather because this is the day that our Lord rose from the grave. And so we often refer to this day as the Lord's Day, the Lord's Day. And so if you hear us talking about today as the Lord's Day, that's why. This is His day. Now, really, every day should be the Lord's Day. But this is Sunday, the first day, the day that He rose from the grave, the Lord's Day. And so Mary Magdalene comes to the tomb to care for His body. Now, it wasn't just Mary Magdalene. There were some other ladies with her. That's, uh, we're told that in the other gospel accounts. But John really highlights Mary here. Now, this is not Mary uh, and Martha that we just read about. This is a different Mary. Mary, she's from the town of Magdala. That's why she's called Magdalene. And uh, there's a lot of uh, interesting things that people suppose about Mary that really aren't necessarily true, or there's really no biblical evidence behind it. But we do know that she had been demon-possessed possessed by seven demons, the scriptures tell us, and Jesus set her free from that. And she loved Jesus so much, so much, and we'll get to that in a moment. But she came to the tomb early while it was still dark. This probably would have been somewhere between three and six o'clock in the morning, the fourth watch of the night. And she saw that the stone had been taken away. Now she was startled by this, obviously, and so what did she do? She ran to the disciples to tell them that this had taken place. Now, she had no clue that Jesus had been resurrected. She says, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have laid him. So the we there indicates that she wasn't by herself. But who is the they? She, she's assuming that there were some grave robbers here. Somebody came and took the body of Jesus, and we don't know where they laid him. That was a very common thing. And that was something that was punishable by death. If people would uh, rob tombs, graves, desecrate the dead, steal from the tombs, if there were any, any valuable things in there. And evidently at this point, that's what she is thinking has happened. And so she comes and she tells the disciples what had happened here. Well, verse 3, So Peter went out with the other disciple. By the way, the other disciple is John, the author of this, this book. The other disciple, Peter and the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Now, it's funny that John makes the, the note there that he beat Peter in a foot race. There was always like, John was the youngest of the crew, and Peter was like one of the older. He was kind of like the leader of the pack, and there was always some kind of rivalry between Peter and John. It's, it's funny, and we see John just taking the opportunity to let it be known that he beat, uh, he beat Peter in a foot race here. But what we notice is that they reach the tomb, and John kind of looks in but steps aside, and Peter bolts all the way into the tomb. And um, you see in verse 5, it says, And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there. Now, three times we're going to see the word saw, starting here and going into the next few verses. They're all the word saw in English, but they're three different words in Greek. 
And sometimes we will reference the fact that the New Testament was written in the Greek language, and the Greek language is very precise. We will have one word to communicate various ideas, like love, for instance. You might love ice cream or love your, your pet or love your spouse, and of course those are going to be different kinds of love, I would hope. And so in the Greek, they have all these different words to communicate the idea, and the same is true here. And we'll, uh, we'll get into that. But before we go any further, I just wanted to show you guys a few pictures. Hopefully this will work all right. We've got a few pictures to show. Now, when we were in Israel last year, I'm, I'm taking this picture from inside the bus. Now, everything is an archaeological site in Israel. Anytime they start digging, if you buy property to build on it, you're really taking a risk. Because once they start to excavate, to dig, to uh, work that land. If they find out there's any archaeological stuff there, you cannot use the land. It is, it is, they halt it as it is, and you cannot tamper with it. So that's what happened here. They were expanding this road up in Galilee, and all of a sudden they came across these tombs. And so they weren't able to expand the road on that side of the road for that very reason. And so I thought, man, this is awesome. This really gives us an insight into what tombs would have looked like, particularly the one of Jesus. So as you would imagine, the stone is right here, and they would roll the stone over the face of the tomb. Now, this is obviously very small, and uh, you, it would be very hard to get in there. Uh, and I don't know how deep down that thing may go, but this would be basically what tombs would look like so often. They would find some rock, carve out the inside of the rock, and then they would roll a, a, a stone over the mouth of the, the cave. Now, if we could go uh, to the other pictures. This is one of the sites that they believe could be where Jesus was laid. Now, obviously, we, we can't know that. There were some other pictures I meant to show you. One of the reasons why they think this might be the spot is because not far from here, there are some uh, stone carvings that almost look like a skull. And, of course, Calvary, where Jesus was crucified, Golgotha means the place of the skull. And so they surmise that Jesus was crucified right in this area, taken off, and then laid in this tomb here. So you see about how tall this is, and, of course, the stone would have been quite large, something like this, and it would have rolled over in front. And that's much bigger, as you would imagine. So if we could go to the next slide. That puts it a little bit more in perspective, uh, walking into the tomb. And then the next one, this is inside. So they have it gated off once you're in there where you can't go down into the space. But they would uh, lay the bodies on benches and uh, different tombs, I assume, would have different configurations. But it is believed by many that this is the tomb where Jesus was laid. It's interesting to consider, but of course we can't know that for sure. But uh, this just gives you a little bit of a picture for yourself of what the, the whole tomb situation would have looked like. I hope that's kind of helpful to us, yes? Okay, thank you. We can take those down. And so that kind of helps put us in, in the scene just a little bit. And so we're told that John ran ahead of Peter. He looked into the, the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there. Now this word saw here... It simply means to take note, to glance in, to quickly take note of what's going on in there. But then he stepped aside, and he was outside for a moment while Peter goes in, and it's altogether possible that John is now scoping out what's going on outside. Are there footprints? Are there you know, tomb robbers out here somewhere in the vicinity? Are we in danger? And in verse 6, 
Then Simon Peter came following him, and he went into the tomb. And he saw, there's that word again, saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in place by itself. So this word for saw means to investigate, to scrutinize. Peter is in there, and he's trying to get to the bottom of what happened. He didn't just glance. He gazed in, and he's, he's, he's really trying to figure out what happened here, what is going on. He's giving it more thought, more depth of consideration. Verse 6, uh, sorry, we already read that. Um, verse 8 it says, Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. <clears throat> he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the Scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. So at this point, John, the apostle, the disciple, goes into the tomb behind Peter and he sees what's going on. He sees the, the grave cloths lying there. Now, this would have been long strips of cloth that they would wrap the body in. They would do that immediately. They didn't have embalming type stuff like we do now. So the day that someone died, they're in the tomb. They would wrap their bodies, put spices and things like that and, and the uh, cloths and then put them in there and, and that was that. And so uh, they come in and they just see the claws lying there. So you, you kind of have to surmise from this, Peter, uh, Jesus, I mean, we, we, we don't know, we can't say, but it's as if he just came through the claws, through the claws somehow. They weren't uh, taken off of him. They weren't torn into pieces. It's as if he just rose like that. And then there was the cloth that would have wrapped his face, and it was neatly folded and set aside, which is an interesting detail. I have heard that there was a custom in the day where if you were invited into someone's home and you felt like you had been disrespected or it was a terrible dining experience or you were offended on some level, if you felt like it was a great experience, you would crumple up your cloth and put it on the plate. If you felt like you had been disrespected, offended, and were never coming back, you would fold it up neatly and set it on the table, which is totally weird to me because, could you imagine that? Like if it was like, you know what, forget you guys. You, this was terrible. I'm not coming back. But, you know, if there is something to that, different culture, different day, uh, maybe that could even be what Jesus is saying here. I'm never coming back. He borrowed that grave. Amen? He was laid in another man's grave. He died, was laid in that tomb for three days. He rose again, never to return. Amen? Amen. Come on. That was pitiful. Amen? Amen. All right, now, come on. Act like you believe this stuff. Now, it's interesting to me that, you know, Mary and the ladies, they came and from the other Gospels were told they didn't even know how they were going to get in the tomb. We know that the religious leaders that, that were part of Jesus being betrayed and, and arrested and falsely accused and even crucified, they went to the Romans and said, look, we want, to, we want this tomb heavily guarded because they even knew that there had been this talk of the resurrection and they didn't want anything like that to happen. And so Pilate gave them some soldiers and they sealed the tomb just to be sure that it could not be opened. 
And of course, they're coming to the tomb. They wanted to, uh, you know, Jesus, that whole process was probably rushed because it was leading up to the Sabbath. So they wanted to come back after the Sabbath and really care for his body as it ought to be. And they're wondering how are they even going to get in the tomb. And then they get there and the tomb is already open. Amazing. Well, now we're going to see the risen Christ. And the first thing that we see is that Christ reveals himself, Christ appears to Mary. So look at verse 11. But Mary, so she's still here, the disciples, they got there, they left, here's, here's Mary. Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. And so this is amazing. She looks into the tomb now weeping, and there are these two angels. These are angels. And this is fascinating to consider because we don't know exactly what this is all about, but the mind kind of goes to the Ark of the Covenant. That was inside the Holy of Holies, and there was this box with a lid, and there were two angels on top of the box facing each other, and the high priest would come in on the Day of Atonement and sprinkle blood onto the Ark of the Covenant there, the mercy seat, for the sins of the nation. And so here it is, Jesus was dead on this slab, and it's very likely that blood had uh, you know, came through the claws there as he's laying, and there are these two angels, one at the, the foot and the head. And so it's just an interesting thing to consider, but this could even be a picture of that. And so uh, Mary sees them. They see her. They say, why are you weeping? And she says, they have taken away my Lord. So she's still on this. They have taken away my Lord. She still thinks that Jesus' body has been taken by some unknown people, and uh, she's clearly distraught, and she says, We do not know where they have laid him. Now, verse 14, Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Now, this is interesting because at this point, Jesus is standing right there, and she doesn't know that it's him. One thing that we begin to notice in this chapter and the other gospel accounts is that Jesus, after he rose from the grave, some things were a little different. He was maneuvering about in ways that he had not before. He's able to walk into rooms, as we will see, without using the door. Uh, apparently, he just came out of those grave claws just like that. On the road to Emmaus with the, the disciples there, they didn't know him. They were walking with him that day. And at a certain point when he broke the bread there, remember, their eyes were open and they realized it was Jesus. And then he just vanished. And so it could be that Jesus is here in front of Mary and it's something like that. And she doesn't realize who is standing in front of her. And she's thinking that it's just the, uh, just the gardener there at the, in the garden at the tomb. 
And so uh, she wants to know, are you the one? Are you the one that took the body? If so, just let me know and I'll take him away. Now that's, that's you know, I, I doubt that. I appreciate her zeal that she would take that upon herself, but it's highly unlikely that, you know, she could, uh, she could carry, you know, her assuming that Jesus' body was, was lifeless. Have you ever had a, a child who just doesn't want to do what you want them to do and they just go limp and they're like lifeless and you're like trying to drag them? It's a little more difficult, dead body weight. And so uh, highly unlikely, but I appreciate her heart in this. And so she says, if you've carried him away, tell me where he is. You've laid him and I'll take him. So verse 16, Jesus says to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went out and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and he has said these things to her. And so all it took was a word. Jesus said her name. Jesus said Mary. And all of a sudden, she knows exactly who it is that is standing in front of her. And she says, Rabbi. Now, Rabbi means teacher, master, if you will. And this suffix, oni, on the end of it indicates like the head, the head rabbi, the, 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 the master overall. And that's the, the title, my, my teacher, my master, the, the Lord overall lords and so it's a it's a beautiful title that she gives to him and what does she do she clings to him and i think one of the other gospels says she clings to his feet she falls down in front of him and grabs his feet now this is a beautiful picture because as i had indicated before jesus had done something extraordinary in her life she had been bound by seven demons who even knew what her life was like up to that point and who knew what her life was like during that point. It's hard for us to even know, but it was bad, I can tell you that. And Jesus came and Jesus set her free. And she loved him so much as one who had been set free and forgiven much. Amen. We're even told that there were some women that followed Jesus and the disciples and cared for them out of their own finances, out of their own sustenance. They, they supported Jesus in his ministry. Could you imagine that? What an honor would it be to support Jesus and the disciples financially so that they could go out and do the ministry that they did over those three years? Man, how great their reward in heaven. And in the same way, it's a blessing for us to be able to continue to support the work of the Lord, God's work as his kingdom is advanced and as the church does what the church is supposed to do. Amen? Amen. And so such, it, such as it was, Mary loved Jesus so much. Now, this is not a be more like Mary sermon. That's not the idea here. But I want us to understand that Mary really is a picture of someone who has been radically changed, set free, and has such a desperate and deep love and devotion for her king, for her savior, for her teacher. Just the fact that she wanted to care for his body, coming to the tomb, not knowing how she was going to get in there, Staying behind after the disciples left, still appealing to the gardener, so she thought that maybe she could take Jesus' body. 
This is someone who has been forgiven much. And Jesus says that the one who loves much has what? They've been forgiven much. Someone who has been forgiven little loves little. Well, the reality is, folks, we all know that we have been forgiven an infinite debt. Amen? We have sinned against a holy God, an infinitely holy and good and just God. And there was a chasm between us that we could never cross over to, nor would we want to be in the presence of this holy God in our sin. But God who is good and merciful, gracious and kind, he crossed that chasm for us through his son, Jesus Christ. He paid the debt that we could never pay in a million eternities on the cross. He suffered the righteous wrath of God in our place. And his perfect righteousness, his perfect goodness was given to us as a gift so that when God sees us, he sees the works of his son, Jesus Christ. Amen? And so now God is not our judge, He is our Father, He is our Savior, our Lord, and our King. And when you know that, when you have experienced that, you cannot help but love Jesus and want to follow Jesus and serve Jesus and obey Jesus and make Jesus known to the world. Amen? Well, that was Mary. That was Mary. She was that person. She knew that she had been set free from some gnarly stuff and had been forgiven much, and she was dedicated to the Lord Jesus Christ. I love that. I love that. May that be true for us. Amen? May that be true for us. All it took was Jesus saying her name, Mary. The Bible says, Jesus says that his sheep, he knows them by name. He calls their name, and they hear his voice, and they follow him. Again, this is a beautiful picture of salvation, I believe. Jesus calls our name. It's not an audible calling. It's even louder than that. You know, when God has reached down and touched your heart and he opens your eyes to the truth of the gospel and Jesus calls you to himself and you follow. Why? Because you're his sheep. And what does the Bible say? Jesus laid his life down for the sheep. Not one will be lost. He is the door. He is the gate of the sheep. He is the good shepherd of the sheep. And he called Mary's name, and she heard his voice, and she knew that it was him, and she fell down at his feet. Praise God that he knows us all by name, that Jesus calls us by name, that we hear his voice, and we turn to him in faith, fall down at his feet, as it were. Now, Jesus says, do not cling to me. Now, again, I'll use another child illustration Have you ever had a kid cling to your foot and refuse to move and you can't get anywhere? You're trying to get somewhere. I've had that. And so now you're trying to like drag them along. Well, Jesus has places to go. He has things to do. Time is limited. And Mary is clinging to him and he says, you've got to let go. You've got to let go. Now, I love this because what an honor. How Mary is honored here to be able to see the risen Christ. What a privilege. What a blessing this is for her. But this is not the way that it's going to be. Jesus has to ascend. 
Jesus has to return back to His heavenly glory. And then the Helper will come and the Holy Spirit will reside within each and every believer. And so she's blessed to be able to see her Savior risen, but it can't stay this way. This is only part of the plan. Jesus has more to do. And He says, I am sending, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father. Note that. Jesus now says he's my father and he's your father because of what has happened. Jesus died, Jesus rose. And now those who have trusted Christ, God is their father. God is their father. And then he says, where am I at here? All right, hold on. Okay, there it is, verse 17. I'm ascending to the Father, go to my brothers and say to them. So now the disciples are Jesus' brother. That's a new one. So Jesus had referred to them as friends, but now they are brothers. And so Jesus is a friend, Jesus is a brother, Jesus is our Lord and Savior, and His Father is our Father. Praise God. That is amazing. So we see this shift happening. Well, now Jesus reveals himself to the disciples. Verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked uh, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So here it is. It's that evening now, and they're hiding out because the enemies of Jesus have proven that they would make good on their threat, and they killed the Lord. And so now they're afraid that all of that is going to be directed at them. So they're hiding out. They're locked in tight for fear of the Jews. And all of a sudden, here's Jesus. Jesus is standing in their midst. And he said, Peace be with you. Now, I love this because what had most recently happened is all the disciples had abandoned Jesus. They took off, right? Peter denied even knowing Jesus. And now here's Jesus. They're they're seeing Jesus. And what is his response? Well, it's not, you guys are a bunch of bums. You blew it. And, oh, Peter, I'll die with you, Jesus. Where, yeah, where were you at, Peter? There was none of that, was it? Not at all. What did he do? He said, peace. Peace be with you. And then he showed them his hands and his side. And I just can see this so vividly in my mind. They're, they're rejoicing. They're, they're huddled around him. They're, they're seeing with their own eyes these things that have taken, been done to Jesus. And he's alive. He's alive. And I love that about our Lord. When we blow it, When we drop the ball, when we fall short, he doesn't say, you know what, I have had enough with you. He doesn't say, I'm sorry I died for you, I regret that. He doesn't do any of that. He is so gracious, merciful, and kind. He knows us. He knows that we're weak. He knows that we are made of dust. The Bible says that our frame is dust. We are creatures of the dirt. And God is full of grace and mercy, and Jesus looks on us with compassion and pity, and he is a faithful and merciful high priest who can sympathize, amen? And so he sees his disciples, and he doesn't rebuke them 
There's this moment of gladness and celebration, and he shows them his hands and his side. The scars are still there, and we believe that that's the way it will be for all of eternity. This, Jesus existed in eternity past as the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. But he took on flesh. He became a man. He was fully God, remained fully God, but took upon himself a second nature and became truly human so that he could actually stand in our place and be our representative and take the sin upon himself and suffer the wrath that we deserved. Yet at the same time, he was truly God and his sacrifice was of infinite worth. Because it was the very life of the Son of God. But now, Jesus forever, throughout all of eternity, will be the God-man. Think about that. He will now be the God-man with these scars to show what He has suffered and what He has gone through on our behalf. Isn't that incredible? It's been said that the only thing man-made in heaven will be the scars on Jesus. The only thing man made in heaven will be the scars in Jesus' hands and side. And for all of eternity, he will be worshipped and glorified as the lamb who was slain. The lamb who has redeemed, who has bought us out of our slavery, out of our bondage, and has brought us back into right relationship with the Father and has restored us to the way that it was meant to be. And he will be glorified forever because of that. And so he shows this to the disciples. Let's keep moving. Verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Does that sound like anybody you know? So many people are like, I have to have all of my questions answered before I'll believe. Well, good luck. You know, I still don't have all my questions answered. At a certain point, it has to be faith. The Bible says that without faith, it's impossible to please God. Now, we, we use our minds. We engage our minds. I do believe the Word of God is deep and that we can engage intellectually, and we should. Amen? But at a certain point, it has to go from here to here. You have to open your heart to the Lord. The Bible says that without faith, it is impossible to please God. It's impossible to please God without faith, but that we must believe that He exists and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. It's faith, amen? Well, Thomas here was not being a man of faith, now was he? Sometimes he's called Thomas the Doubter. His name is Didymus. You know what that means? Twin means twin. So who was Thomas's twin? Well, it could be one of you in here right now. It could be several of us. Are we doubting? Are we, are we hating? Are we insisting that we're not going to believe unless we have every single thing spelled out for us? I certainly hope not. We must trust and believe. So, 26, verse 26, eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. 
And so now Jesus, Jesus calls Thomas out. Here he is. Thomas is present. He says, go ahead, Thomas. Here I am. And I'm sure Thomas is thinking, how did he even know that I said that? Right? But it's the Lord. Jesus knew. He put him to the test. And he doesn't say, Thomas, I'm sick of your unbelief. Have I not showed you enough? You know, get out of here. Sorry, I'm done with you. I guess now it's just going to be the ten disciples. He doesn't do that. He says, here, Thomas, see for yourself. I love that. Jesus says, see for yourself. Taste for yourself. See that the Lord is good. That's what the Bible says. Taste and see. Come and experience. Test, prove his acceptable and good and gracious will. Romans 12. And so Jesus engages Thomas. But what is Thomas's response? Verse 28. He says, my Lord and my what? My God. My Lord and my God. It's a clear, clear testimony to the deity of Christ. He is Lord and God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Man, just take that in for a moment. He says, now you believe, huh? Now you believe? How much more blessed are those who, having never seen, still believe? That's us. Jesus, Jesus has a special affection and affinity for those who, having not seen with their physical eyes, have seen with the eyes of their heart. Their heart has been opened. They can testify to the truthfulness of the Word of God the gospel of God, they've been forever changed. And they know that they know and absolutely nothing will ever convince them otherwise. Jesus says, blessed is that person. Blessed are you. And Peter even talks about that in 1 Peter. He says, having never seen him yet, you love him. You love him. And I will tell you, that's an amazing faith. I know so often we think, man, if only I could have seen or been with the disciples and experienced and on and on. And, uh, you know... That wouldn't make any difference, really. People are skeptics. They saw the most amazing things and still insisted on his crucifixion. After everything that Thomas saw, he didn't believe that Jesus rose, even at the testimony of his brothers. But when God has been so gracious to us and opened our eyes and our hearts to the reality of who Christ is, Jesus loves that. He delights in that. He says, blessed. That means happy. Blessed. Happy are those who have not seen and yet believed. And now we close the chapter. Here we have John's purpose statement for the whole book. Here it is in verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Everything that John has recorded for us is for this purpose, so that we would see so that we would believe, so that we would have life in Jesus' name. Amen? We're not here to just accumulate a bunch of facts and head knowledge. We are to learn so that we may live. We are to believe and receive God's grace and His Spirit so that we can be changed forever. Amen? So that's the goal. That is John's goal. And now that you have heard... You have heard the testimony of Christ, who He is, what He came to do, the gift that has been extended to us all freely and graciously. Believe. Trust Christ. Call upon His name. Be saved. Be changed. 
Be set free. Be set free. Receive the forgiveness of God, the abundant forgiveness. You know, you cannot really forgive until you have truly been forgiven. You cannot really love until you have truly been loved. Amen? You cannot experience the truly victorious and meaningful life until you have been reconciled to your God. God created us to be in fellowship and right relationship with Him. And that was broken because of sin and the curse. We will never be made whole until we are restored to our Creator, until we are brought back into right relationship with Him. And that is what Jesus came to do. That is what is offered to us through the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. All you have to do is believe. The Bible says to confess. Believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. Amen? And all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And so... To God be the glory and God help us all. I pray that if there's anyone in here today who has not trusted Christ for salvation, that even in this very moment in your heart, you would simply confess, I believe Jesus. I need your forgiveness. Please forgive me. Cleanse me. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. I want to turn from my ways and I want to follow you. You may not say it exactly like that, but that's the idea. That's what it boils down to, believing. Believing that you are who God says you are, that you are separated from Him and you are in need of His forgiveness, a sinner who is accountable for their sin, but that He is who He says He is, and that He's a loving God who sent His Son Jesus to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. Believe that. Believe it in your heart. Stop trusting yourself to be good, to be a good person. Stop trusting in yourself to stand before God one day and trust in Christ. Receive the gift of God. Amen? Amen. Amen. Now, that's what has happened for the people who are being baptized today. That is what has happened for the people that are being baptized today. And I read in Romans chapter 6, Pastor Dan, if you want to come on up here, earlier, and I'm going to reread the first few verses for us. In Romans chapter 6, Paul says, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know all of us who have been baptized in Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we might too walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And so in Christ, by the Holy Spirit, his death is applied to us. His resurrection is applied to us to us. So we can say that I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. We can say that just as Christ rose from the grave, so have I, victorious over death. And Paul says the person that says that must depart from sin. How can we continue in sin if we have died to it? Amen. If our Lord and Savior suffered as he did so that we could be set free, why would we want to live in the very thing that he died for to set us free? Amen? 
Well, that's what baptism represents. Baptism is the grave, as it were, and the person is lowered down into the water, and they are brought back up. And what that symbolizes is that I have died with Christ, I have been buried, and I have risen again into the newness of life. Baptism doesn't save us. You're saved by your confession upon Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You're born again, you're regenerated, you're given a new heart, but then you are publicly baptized. And this is a very significant moment throughout much of the world when our brothers and sisters are baptized. They now have a death warrant on them because in many cultures and other religions, they see this as the moment in which you have crossed that line. Once you have done this, now you've gone too far and you could lose everything, your family, your home, your business, your friends, your community, and even your life, even your life. And so there is something so significant here. For one thing, it's obedience to the command of our Savior to be baptized. Amen? And so if you believe in Jesus but haven't been baptized, you're missing something very significant. You must be baptized. But to be able to stand before people and say that I have decided to follow Christ, that I have died to sin and been risen again into the newness of life and the likeness of my Savior, and there is no turning back. The world has nothing for me. Amen? It's a public declaration of an inward reality. It's a public confession of our undying, unswerving loyalty and commitment to the Savior. And it is our declaration that we are united with Him by the Holy Spirit. Amen? And so that's what we celebrate today. And it's truly beautiful and an honor to be able to celebrate together as the family of God and the body of Christ. Amen? Baptism is truly meaningful and a blessing. But, you know, just what happened here today, there's so many just amazing stories of people coming here, coming to the knowledge of Jesus, being saved, chains being broken, people being set free from addiction, and having their lives changed right here in front of us all as we walk with them on their journey. And so it's amazing to be a part of what God is doing here, and all glory and honor to God. Amen? All right. Well, may God go before you. May he bless you. May he keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you. May he lift up your countenance. May he give you peace. In Jesus' name, amen.